With over 1 billion speakers, and that's a conservative estimate, English is an incredibly diverse language. Dozens of countries around the world have their own varieties, many of which have not historically seen adequate representation in English dictionaries. This is Rachel Havard with the Oxford Comment. This past April, the Oxford English Dictionary hosted the Oxford World English Symposium 2022, a two-day event featuring a series of parallel sessions and panel discussions on topics relating not only to varieties of English, but language prejudice, colonialism, and context-based English language teaching, among others. On today's episode, we're featuring three of the symposium's participants in the form of a follow-up panel hosted by Dr. Danica Salazar, World English Executive Editor for Oxford Languages. We will now pass things over to Danica. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in this episode of the Oxford Common Podcast. I am Danica Salazar, and I'm Executive Editor for World Englishes for Oxford Languages. On the 12th and 13th of April, the Oxford English Dictionary hosted the Oxford World English Symposium, an online event that brought together Oxford University Press's dictionary teams with academic researchers, teachers, lexicographers, and other language practitioners to share research findings, experiences, and insights on World Englishes so that we can come up with innovative approaches to the creation of dictionaries and other lexical resources. The symposium kicked off on Tuesday, April 12, with 12 parallel sessions which took participants on a journey around the English-speaking world, where they heard about interesting lexicographical projects such as the documentation of World English vocabulary and pronunciation in the OED, the creation of localized English dictionaries in South Africa, and the collection of new words in the greater China region. They learned about concepts such as language prejudice, context-based English language teaching, and translingual words. They were fascinated by descriptions of varieties of English, such as multicultural London English, Southeast Asian English, Ugandan English, and Australian Aboriginal English. Day two of the symposium on April 13 was just as rewarding and thought-provoking. The day began with welcome remarks from the chief editor of the OED, Michael Prophet, and with a beautiful keynote speech by Bermudian poet Aisha Townsend. Following this, another diverse set of lexicographers, linguists, language teachers, and authors came together to discuss four very important topics relating to dictionaries and world Englishes, decolonization, research resources, English language teaching, and dialectal variation. The symposium attracted nearly 2,000 registrants based in countries as varied as China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Nigeria, Uruguay, Argentina, Malaysia, the Philippines, South Africa, Uganda, and Australia. Several hundred of these registered participants attended the live sessions. And today, I'm very happy to be joined by my symposium co-chairs to have a conversation about everything that was discussed during these two very long, very intense, and very productive days of listening and learning. So could I just ask you to introduce yourselves? Lisa? Hi there, thanks Danica, and uh, it's wonderful to be um, in a way reflecting on the the symposium uh, on this podcast. So I'm Lisa Lim, I'm Associate Professor in the School of Education at Curtin University and also hold Honorary Associate Professor positions at the Department of Linguistics at the University of Sydney and in the School of English at the University of Hong Kong. My interests center around um, world Englishes, of course, and in more particularly contact dynamics in new and especially Asian Englishes in multilingual ecologies and other areas such as language shift, endangerment, vitality in minority and endangered language communities, and the sociolinguistics of globalization. I write a fortnightly language matters column 
for Hong Kong South China Morning Post Sunday Post magazine, uh, which is also available online if anybody's interested. And I am a consultant um, for the OED on the varieties of Singapore English and Hong Kong English. Thank you, Isa. Michael, welcome to this discussion. Thanks, Annika. Hello, I'm Michael Prophet. I'm the chief editor of the OED. Thank you. And finally, we have Philip. Hi, Danica. Uh, I'm Dr. Philip Lowe, Publishing Manager for Dictionaries and Dictionary Data at OUP South Africa, and with some additional support in Australia, India, and East Africa as well. Um, I come from an academic background uh, from the University of Stellenbosch, but I've now been working on commercial dictionaries at OUP for 17 years, and in a sense, I've lived every academic's dream. Uh, spending much of my studies building models on how school dictionaries could incorporate elements from the English language teaching dictionaries to make them more user friendly, and then being able to move into the private sector and to put those uh, models into practice um, at OUP South Africa. Um, in terms of world English, I'd say my most memorable moment at OUP came um, after I'd been on a morning show on national TV to talk about our work on including words from different South African languages that have become part of South African English. Now, on the drive home from work later, a street vendor tapped on my window. He didn't want to sell me anything, though, but he just wanted to thank me for what we're doing and for uh, acknowledging the variety of English that he speaks. Now that incident and similar engagements in classrooms have made me realize the immense need there is for people to have their variety recognized and the damage that we can do in classrooms to children's confidence, self-esteem and learning ability if we don't. Thanks, Philip. And thank you, Lisa and Michael. It's really great to have all three of you here and have the four of us um, together uh, just a week after the symposium to talk about everything that that we discussed during those those two days and i feel like to start the discussion uh, by asking you lisa because you know we talk about uh world Englishes and we talk about varieties of english just indian english singapore english um, but actually you know if the the way that english the va variation in english is just a lot more complex than that and that's how what you've discussed in your panel discussion during the symposium so could you tell us a little bit more about you know how this is variation manifests in english and and what scholars are doing to talk about that and what the kind of paradigms that they use to talk about the different ways in which english is spoken by different people around the world yeah thanks danica yeah indeed um we our panel um, on the spectrum of variety of in um, variation in English covered quite a few topics. I don't think I'll be able to mention everything um, during this podcast, but I will try to sort of highlight maybe three or four dimensions of variation. Maybe I start with a little anecdote. Right? De decades ago, when I first embarked on my doctoral research on Singapore English, and Singapore is where um, you know where I come from and where my early training was based. I mean, these were the early years of work on Singapore English. And um, there was already recognition of, obviously the early work looked at um, differences between British English, of course, and Singapore English. And there was also, you know, the, the, the recognition that there's a more standard variety of Singapore English versus colloquial, a more colloquial variety of Singapore English. But, you know, that was more or less where we were at at the time. And um, so it was really interesting that there was other variation that, you know, we could observe, but 
which not which had not sort of started seeing research done in it. And in fact, you know, I started looking at ethnic varieties of English, right? Chinese, Malay, and Indian varieties of English. I was focusing more on intonation patterns, but obviously, you know, we see differences in over the different um, linguistic features. And then a little bit later on, I started looking into a variety which you know now is now known as Pranakan English. So the Pranakans are community um, who are found in Southeast Asia, who are essentially descendants of sort of um, southern Chinese um, traders and merchants who intermarried with sort of the local women in the Southeast Asian region, and you know a kind of hybrid community um, emerged. Um, and amongst other things, they were some of the early English adopters in the region. So it's really interesting the Singapore ecology that you know they were some of the early users of English and have quite a distinctive variety, um, which in turn actually had an influence on the early development of Singapore English. And there's a long and interesting story in there. But I guess what I want is, you know, what I want you know us to sort of recognize is that in, you know, yes, we we have various labels for different varieties of English, but there's so much variation within whether it's, you know, regional or ethnic varieties or even particular communities within, you know, a particular recognized um, national label. So I that's one of the first things I think that is obviously um, widely recognized in, in all the different varieties of English around the world. And then if one starts, I mean, if one takes seriously, you know, the, the issues to do with a multilingual ecology or right? a multilingual environment, the various languages therein and language contact dynamics, then the patterns in the variation that we see and that we study in world Englishes becomes really, truly sort of complex and exciting, but also raises quite a lot of questions and challenges with regard to, you know, how we can think of world Englishes, right? And how we can, especially for you and the OED, for, for um, lexicographers of English, you know, how we can start to, you know, wrangle with the, um, all the multilingual influences that you that you see, right? And this takes several forms, and this actually was discussed quite a bit in our panel. So, for example, let's take us back to Braj Katru in 1985, right? Who talked about the bilinguals' creativity already back then, um, referring to the kinds of strategies that multilingual speakers use, um, drawing on you know the linguistic resources of two or more languages that are in their repertoire and you know this manifests itself in in various ways i mean it's been studied for a long time now as code switching or code mixing and in more recent years we've had a um, slightly new uh, thrust in um, the field and trans languaging um, i won't go into the details of those right now for because of time but you know what we see is the you know use of two or more language varieties, you know, in a very fluid, um, spontaneous manner. Sometimes such varieties are called hybrid varieties. You have something called Teglish in, in Philippines, right? With Tagalog. In my, I would argue it's my native language, really. That's what, what we use mostly in the Philippines now, rather than just exclusively Tagalog or exclusively English. Yeah, exactly that. Thanks, Danica, for for <laughs> being witness to bearing witness yeah. to that, right? And uh, scholars have said, well, you know, you actually can't really find what you want to call, and I put this in quote marks, right? 
a pure variety of English or pure mm. variety of Tagalog. That, you know, it's Taglish, as you say, that's what you, that's your, your variety. And so when we come to a situation like that, then th this is the question, right? What, and you know, how, how, how does this fit, right? When we're thinking about Englishes and the decisions that we make about, you know, what of that can be, and again, quote marks here, counted, right? In, um, as a variety of English or in a in a dictionary such as the OED. So, you know, very interesting questions. I don't know how, what kinds of discussions that you have, you editors have in the OED, um, um, but certainly, you know, that's one um, very exciting and important dimension. Um, I guess another dimension when we're thinking about multilingual ecology is that when you have different and let's say let's say countries, right? Singapore and Malaysia, for example, who have had similar ecologies over time, then what you see are quite similar, sometimes similar patterns or features emerging because you have um, common languages in the background, right? So Malay, for example, Malay varieties, um, Southern Chinese varieties in the ecologies of Singapore and Malaysia, Brunei as well. And so, you know, what you might see is, and of course this is documented in the OED, for example, a very nice straightforward example, the particle la, right? Your famous Singapore English particle la. Don't be like that la, you know, it's so easy and so obvious la. And so you've got that, you find it in Singapore English, you find it in Malaysian English, um, Brunei English as well. So it's quite interesting to see, um, you know, regional, features as well and it you know I, I guess that's also an interesting point when we're thinking about English varieties and you know that you can have shared features we also see shared features of tone and various other things across different regions and it's interesting the way that the, these features travel as well so they can start in, in Asia so for example with the um, features coming from Korean English starting in East Asia, you know, in China and in Korea, and then traveling on to Southeast Asia, where you have lots of people consuming Korean dramas and K-pop and all these things, and then suddenly you have this whole vocabulary that's shared by by all the all these people in different parts of Asia, and then now traveling even further onto Europe and 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 North America. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm glad you mentioned that. That was exactly the next point I was going to get to right now. Exactly, right, the power and the impact of of popular culture and, uh, and and right now I guess yeah K-pop and K-drama are really up there. If you remember at our panel, there was a huge <laughs> flurry of excitement when that exactly, topic yeah. came up. Right, everyone was like in the chat box. Very eager to share words. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and Claire Cowie and Jerry Lee, who were on the panel, were were you know engaging and giving and and speaking about what was going on with various um, Korean English terms and as you say how they you know, have such appeal because of popular culture and soft power, right, as it were, and, you know, how much that gives them so much currency. And so, so the questions, right, for world English is no longer confined to Korean or Korean English. And as you say, not, not even, you know, East Asian or Southeast Asian, but really something that um, has been taken on by speakers worldwide. So that's, you know, that's a really interesting uh, dimension as well. Um, in addition to popular culture, I guess, also language practices like what goes on in co on computer mediated communication, right? The, the, the language practices and the variation that emerges on such platforms, which can, again, like pop culture, you know, really see quite an impact and not just be confined to um, these very specific domains. So my usual very, very favorite um, anecdote um, comes from some of the research that I've been doing 
from the time I was working in Hong Kong and I continue um, now even after I've left Hong Kong. So looking at Hong Kong English and um, what happens there. So in Hong Kong, I mean, uh, even while English is one of the official languages, um, the majority of people are Cantonese dominant. Um, and in particular in, in, you know, spoken discourse. And um, one very common Cantonese um, phrase or saying is gayao, which literally means so add oil or add fuel, okay, add fuel to your car so that you, you go faster and quicker and so on. And, and this really means, this is kind of an exhortation, um, you know, a, a, a phrase that encourages people to hang in there during hard times or work harder and so on. Um, and um, so this is widely used in spoken discourse in Cantonese, Gaiyao. Um, and of course, you find it in, com in computer-mediated discourse, right? Texting, chats, and so on. Um, the phrase is used often. But you find quite a lot of romanization of the Chinese characters. So it's spelled G-A-Y-A-U, Gaiao, or and calking into English, right? So literally translated as add oil. Um, because young Hong Kongers have said, you know, that you know, even while they can obviously write Chinese characters, it's also sometimes quicker, more efficient to romanize or to write it in English. And so this is widely used in, um, on, has been widely used in computer-mediated communication and not so much in spoken discourse. And about 10 years ago, a bit more than 10 years ago, I used to ask my students, you know, how many of you, you know, text, add oil? And you know, many of them put up their hands and I say, how many of you actually say, you know, add oil? And they started, you know, they'd giggle in class and so on. Everyone found that really strange. But over time and over a very short period of time, because of the frequency of use um, um, in computer mediated communication, this actually started being taken on and getting more common, such that it started being used in spoken discourse as well. So now you find quite a lot of people saying it, um, of, of course, texting it. And um, scholars have started writing about it. I've written about it. Journalists picked it up. It started, you know, gaining quite a bit of attention during the Hong Kong protests of 2014. And, and then in 2019, um, this term was used quite a lot by the protesters to encourage each other. So this really, you know, it gave them quite a lot of um, presence on the global stage. And, you know, the long story short is that it received enough, enough attention and garnered it, gained enough currency that, of course, as you know well, Danica, the OED actually included it in 2018. So I think there's a great lesson there as well about agency, about, um, you know, attention to language practices and variation on other platforms, such as computer-mediated communication and the kind of impact and how that can spread as well um, to other domains, like spoken domains, as well as beyond that particular speech community, right? Yeah, that's a great example, exactly, that you bring up, Lisa. And I remember when we added Ad Oil in 2019 in the OED, what struck me was how important it was to Hong Kong um, speakers of English. It was really big news in, in Hong Kong. I think one really famous Chinese professor tweeted it and everybody was talking about it. There were news articles being written about it. And, and there was a lot of tone of surprise. There was a tone of surprise in a lot of these um, this media coverage because it didn't seem to Hong Kongers that ad oil would be something that would be a kind of word that that, that OED would, would add because um, it's, it is an exclusively, mostly an English speaking, uh, a Hong Kong English word. So I think just Taking the conversation back to, to the um, staying on to the topic of, of the OED. Uh, so it seems that a lot of people think that adding world English words is something new that we're just doing right now. But 
But is that, the OED actually has a long history of recording variation in English. So I'd just like to ask Michael now or whether he could comment on on that, you know, the way that the OED has um, reflected the way that English, um, it, the way that English differs depending on where it is spoken and if there's been any changes that has happened um, in the English-speaking world in, in recent years and how the dictionary has reflected those those changes. Yes, you're right, Danica. The the has always sought to cover all varieties of English, including the regional and the dialectal. Um, in fact, early on in the history, James Murray, the original editor, was was criticised by some of his colleagues for including outlandish vocabulary, they called it, which was a kind of code word for foreign loans. Um, interesting choice of word from the outlands, you know. So, but actually Murray repeatedly resisted attempts to speed up the work on the dictionary by minimising editorial effort on either foreign loan words or scientific and technical vocabulary. They were often the two categories that people sort of said that, that they could save time by not addressing. I think actually Murray's gifts as a linguist meant that he recognised that English was fundamentally a composite of other languages and that, that was one of its strengths, was its susceptibility to the influence of other languages. And I found an interesting quotation from him. He said, hardly any word from a foreign language looks odd or out of place among our home words. Quite an interesting statement. Mm. The phrase home words slightly problematic and it's, it reflects Murray wrestling with this concept that he called Anglicity, which he saw sort of central core of English. Um, one manifestation of that in his edition of the OD was that words that he thought hadn't been fully naturalised into English were marked with these this little symbol, which was two sort of parallel lines. We call them tram lines. Um, it seems a bit of a problematic notion to us now, but I think it's part of that sort of strongly classificatory mindset that was uh, prevalent in the period, possibly actually also a concession in some ways to that criticism I mentioned, uh, where there were people who thought these were borderline cases. I think the other thing to say about Murray's sort of work on the OED is that dictionaries depend really on their evidence. And as a historical dictionary, the OED illustrates every definition with quotations from written texts of all kinds. Murray really tried to be international, I think, in his approach to gathering evidence. And he did do successful appeals uh, in the UK, public appeals in the UK, the US and in Australia. Um, but the evidence that he gathered tended to be literary and journalistic. And from particular perspectives, actually, Danica, you made the point that mm -hmm. some of the regional English terms included in the OD are viewed very much through a colonist's lens. Uh, you mentioned abaca. Is it the where the definition for the and the quotations are really not about the tree as a feature of the landscape of the Philippines, but as a commodity in That's British commerce? Yeah. And actually, in terms of OD history, quotations from Asian, African and Caribbean writers, novels and newspapers really tend to appear from the supplement period onwards, 60s and 70s, when the evidence became a bit more available to a fundamentally a British-based dictionary. But sort of meanwhile, in the real world, as it were, <laughs> there were these huge changes going on, uh, massive growth in the English language, but also a kind of paradigm shift that you've talked about that made English the global lingua franca we know today. And that growth resulted from lots of overlapping historical factors. The, international cultural influence of two successive English-speaking nations, Britain in the 19th century, America in the 20th, the advent of mass transit and mass communications, technological advances that allowed the kind of successive recording, broadcast and digital media to deliver, as Lisa was saying, popular culture, print, film, TV and music to mass audiences worldwide 
and then latterly to create not just news media but social media as everyday forms of both local and remote communications and uh, those major shifts I think were also reflected in the post-colonial world with the recognition um, that I think you've said Danica mm -hmm. that national and regional varieties of English serve to express national and regional identities. I think the OED's response to those changes is part of what gave rise to the symposium and uh, we recognised many years ago our desire to improve and extend our coverage of regional Englishes. Um, that revolution in digital communications that I mentioned really opened up lots of new and productive avenues of research for the OED. Um, so we got much bigger and better sources of evidence, those huge online archives and large text corpora. But evidence and analysis aren't the same as knowledge and experience, and you need both, really. You can't substitute one for the other. So you'll remember this, Danica. When I became chief editor, we had a big team meeting. And um, one of the questions I was asked, possibly by you, was what were we going to do about World English? And I said that, well, it was a, a very important question. We needed to recognise both our strengths and our limitations, and that the key to improving the documentation of uh, regional Englishes wasn't simply augmenting OD's coverage, that we need to be aware and respectful of the fact that the real expertise lies elsewhere. And you've done so much work in the past 10 years to forming effective and partnerships and forming effective partnerships and working collaboratively to understand and document those regional Englishes. Um, I think if we hadn't done that, we'd have been deluding ourselves that with the idea that we could do it alone. So personally, I, I kind of see the long term goal as uh, those collaborations being part of a kind of hub of interlinked language resources. OED would be one of those, but fundamentally several historical dictionaries that might interact and, and work together rather than OED going it alone. And the symposium seemed to me absolutely to express that um, possibility. Yes, you're right, Michael. I think that really the symposium showcases the, the importance of those collaborations to the OED's efforts in documenting world Englishes because most of the of the experts who spoke or contributed in in some way to the symposium has actually now have like like Lisa's, you know, are either recent collaborators or long-standing consultants for for the OED. So so they've not only been um, involved with them just for the symposium, but you've been actually have been working with them for a long time on 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 the different areas of expertise or different varieties that they work on as as researchers. So it was really good to be able to to discuss these themes with them, seeing that we have this whole um they they really are participants in in the OED's um World English pro program, and I think that it's also important to say that um. The thing about being a lexicographer in the OED, which is a historical dictionary, is that you're really faced with, you know, what truly is a, a quite an uncomfortable history of of the language, because um, so you really see even from the quotations that you work on every day, the documents that you work on dating back to the colonial period, that language, the English language, was used as a tool for controlling colonized people and. Uh, dictionaries have in some way kind of contributed to that by being the the tool that's used to maintain this idea of a standard English. So this was the question that we kind of addressed in my panel where we talked about the decolonization of of English and what part dictionaries can can play uh, in in that process of de decolonization and whether is it really possible to do that from Oxford 
from you know the land of, of of the colonizer and kind of agree that that yes it is possible but in order to do that we have to kind of turn that traditional view of the dictionary as you know as the book that tells you what what english should be so that idea of the dictionary as the authorities is something that that everybody who's ever gone to school believes in kind of use that traditional ideology to try to change the attitudes towards varieties of english that aren't standard and it's really interesting that in our um panel discussion they had professor uh, phil benson based in uh, um, australia um there's we had greeley sweet who was a singaporean poet and we had um kola tubosun who's a poet and a linguist and educator from nigeria and and quentin williams who is a south african professor and, and lexicographer and 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 of course i'm from the philippines and we realized in our discussions that this english language situation where we're from and where we work are basically the same so they're mostly they're generally you know post-colonial varieties where english was um the language of the colonizer it was a prestige language but but after the colonizers have left, um, so it was Britain in the case of Nigeria and Singapore and just the US in the case of the Philippines. So after colonization, even though there's this history of trauma with the English language, we still decided to keep it. We maintained it in our society because we felt that we needed it. You know, we needed it, number one, as an international lingua franca, because these post-colonial societies are usually very multi-ethnic and very multilingual. So we kind of needed English as a, as a neutral language. It doesn't belong to a specific group that we could use to try to speak to each other. And then we also felt that we needed it to be able to communicate with, with the wider world. So English involved, um, it stayed, it remained a, a, a kind of an elite language in, in these countries. It's become a very, a, um, something that was necessary for someone to achieve some kind of social mobility. So if you want to get a good job, you have to learn English in school. But that in itself is kind of, it's, it's very problematic because it's become that question of accessibility and, and also that question of what is proper English. And for a long time, you know, like growing up in the Philippines, you were taught that you had to sound American to speak English properly. So we had classes in school, we had to kind of repeatedly say words like gingivitis, like all repeatedly. And that was how we were supposed to learn English and the pronouncing, trying to pronounce that word in an in American accent. And that, you know, it sounds ridiculous now, but that was that was the goal to sound American and and you know and your words have to be in the American dictionary so but now especially now where people are much more aware of the importance of, of, of variety of embracing the way that we naturally speak and what is important in our own individual cultures and environments um, that just doesn't fly anymore so, so there's a welcome change in attitudes and and, and dictionaries can can help in changing those attitudes. So, for example, when because you know when the OED does things, people you know pay attention. So when we add words from Nigerian English, from Singapore English, or from Philippine English, this is you know a respected dictionary saying, look, these words are all part of the English language. They're all contributing not to the downfall of the language, but to its continued development. 
and and that's something that that people lis listen to and it's something that amplifies voices that were previously not heard but having said that we also agreed in the panel that is that's equally important for this work to go beyond just big dictionaries and international dictionaries like the OED there's also it's also very important for local dictionaries to be made so we have to encourage you know Nigerians themselves to to make Nigerian dictionaries, Filipinos to make Philippine English dictionaries, and, and Indians to create Philippine um, in Indian English dictionaries. So, um, so that's really the goal to have more resources rather than just so having these words recorded in the OED is one thing, but there's still a lot more work to do. And and as Michael said, it's something that should start locally because it's really the people who use these varieties of English that need to be involved in, in their documentation. And I guess one reason why we have to think of these questions is mostly because of, of, of education, right? Um, I mean, the way that, that languages are taught and are perceived in the classroom really has a big impact on, on learning and teaching outcomes. And, and Philip, those were the questions that you addressed in your own panel. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad that you started talking a little bit already about the attitudes of, of people towards the different Englishes and the different varieties of English, because that's almost the elephant of, in the room if, if you're talking about um, ELT or in English language teaching. Um, across the world, dictionaries are almost seen in English language teaching classrooms as corrective tools. So um, the, it creates this tension between us as lexicographers who want to be descriptive and describe the language as it's used, and teachers and students who look to dictionaries as prescriptive tools who need to show this idea of a standard singular English that, um, that they need to learn in order to succeed in life. So you've got this constant tension there. And it's a tension that shifts with, as you've rightly said, with the decolonization debate. Um, in some countries, for example, in India, my colleague Sharmila, who is one of the panelists, have indicated that there's been a move towards a more inclusive, descriptive approach from the education departments. But another panelist, Professor Heath Rose, indicated that in Japan, for example, that pressure to be prescriptive doesn't just come from the uh, teachers and the students, it comes from the parents as well. So you've kind of got this, this wide um, spectrum of responses to what addiction is should do. And in a country like South Africa, it's actually forced us to be quite um, proactive in our approach and engage with teachers and kind of socialize this idea that South African English is not slang. It is a perfectly uh, valid variety of English, and it should be allowed in the English language classroom. So the, the, that's a big bridge to cross. But I think once one has crossed that bridge, then um, there are really three things that came out of the panel that that needs doing. And, and the first of this is that in these big international dictionaries, like, for example, your OED Lexico, which is our current dictionaries data set, and then, of course, in the Oxford Advanced Learners Dictionary, which is um, the, the best-selling dictionary and the one that's most frequently used in classrooms, in all of those, there, there needs to be more 
space allocated to to world Englishes. And and space is of course especially a problem in a dictionary like the advanced learners dictionary, which is mostly a print dictionary that seeks to cover the core vocabulary so that people can communicate effectively. So if you're going to put all the different world Englishes in, what are you going to take out, right? So that then leads into the, the second point that, um, you know, in, in some of the markets where there's more of an appetite and more of a need for um, the local variety of English to be recognized, it becomes very important to localize dictionaries, to make a South African school dictionary or a South African concise Oxford dictionary, or even a localized version of the advanced learners dictionary, for example. And that localization goes beyond just loan words from other languages. It, it goes into things like looking at the curriculum um, that's used in that specific country and identifying terms that's that are used more frequently within that curriculum. So, for example, like in South Africa, the word orthophoto, which is used frequently in the geography curriculum, but you won't find in many English, British English school dictionaries. So those types of words uh, need to be included, but also words that may be um, low frequency words in global English, uh, but are high frequency words in a local variety. I'm thinking here of, of a term like expropriation, which is a, a really important term in, uh, in the decolonizing sphere in South Africa, where there's a debate around expropriation of land without compensation. You know, if um, a child in South Africa needs to use a dictionary as a receptive tool, in other words, they're reading a comprehension test and need to understand what they're reading, that might be a word that they will come across, but it won't be in the international school dictionaries, for example. So that localization is very important. But then the third, and this for me is, is also a very important part, in, in particularly in um, markets where English is is a real problem. Transitioning to English is a real problem. And again, South Africa is one of those markets. Um, you know, our kids are expected to to go over to English at the age of ten as medium of instruction. But at the same time, our poll studies show that eight out of ten kids at that age can't read for meaning yet, not even in their own mother tongue, and they're supposed to switch over to English. So there you have a real conundrum. So the third solution is that we recognize that in many classrooms there'll be some form of translanguaging, whether it's code switching between English and the mother tongue, or whether it's some kind of parallel te teaching. And what we need in classrooms like that is for a publisher like OUP to make more um, bilingual dictionaries to help facilitate the transition and also to act kind of as a stepping stone to monolingual dictionaries, which is expected at the more advanced learners uh, levels. Yeah, yeah, it's really good point. And I'm glad to hear from you, Philip, that, you know, there's really um, now this change in attitude towards, because I remember when I was in school, I used to get fined in English class for every Tagalog word that would come out of my mouth, but so so from someone for someone living you know growing up with both languages, it's very difficult not to switch, and it's always been that code switching having two languages has always been seen strangely as 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 a weakness rather than 
than than benefits. So I'm, I'm glad that now attitudes have changed so that people are increasingly recognizing that it's actually good for children to be growing up in multiple languages. And in fact, that's the norm because there are more multilingual people than monolingual people um, in the world. So I'm glad that all of these new ideas are now coming into the classroom and resulting in changes in, in how we teach languages. Danica, so, if I, I can just, yeah. sorry, if I can just add one last point. And I think this is also an important point. I think that hegemonization of English mm -hmm. also has led, and this is something that came through very strongly from both um, our Nigerian panelist, Joy and, and Sharmila, um, that can also lead to, uh, you know, insensitivities in the use of language. And the example that that um, Sharmila used was the word juggernaut, juggernaut yeah. uh, which is often in in um, sort of global English used in a negative way, and that is incredibly insensitive to to certain Indian, um, um, uh, you know, speakers of English because. It's based on the name of a god who's an extremely positive force in in their religion. So I think, you know, um, that is another part of this that, um, you know, alongside all these efforts to to, uh, you know, broaden our, our scope of teaching world English, we also need to address the insensitivities that have um, existed in a colonized background and address those in our school and our bigger dictionaries. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's really something very important to consider as well. Um, so I just also wanted to ask, um, so you've all listened to all the talks and the discussions during the symposium, and I'm just curious to know, what did you all find the most inspiring of all the things that, that we talked about um, in the symposium? Um, Lisa? Actually, what I found most inspiring was, I mean, <laughs> everything that went on, you always wish that there was more time to discuss. Yeah you know in the in the panels and so on I, but i think what was most inspiring is that the very fact that um the, the symposium brought together um people you know academics lexicographers um creative uh, writers and so on in a kind of conversation um and that people were doing it so readily and with a very um you know with a with an eye on the kind of on the common goal right of trying to uh, develop you know uh, uh, what what we set out to do, and um, and also the fact that there was such interest from the audience, right, from across the world, uh, and and engagement during the panels and so on from the audience. Not so much that you know sometimes you couldn't even keep up with what was going on on the chats. So for me, that was I think um, really inspiring and really exciting. Yeah. It was really great seeing all of those hellos at the beginning of each event with people saying hello from India or hello from from the Philippines or something like that. And it's just really great to be, you know, sitting at home, but still being connected to all of these these people from all over the world. Michael, but how about you? I totally agree with that. The, um, the kind of scrolling comments mm -hmm. and questions, where it was a kind of ticker tape of joy because there was this <laughs> wonderful sense of community and extraordinary number of, of uh, contributors from across the world and uh, yeah that was that was that was wonderful to see i think um i agree with lisa as well the atmosphere was incredibly positive but it didn't sidestep the complexity or difficulty of the questions that we were discussing and uh, also i for me some of the recorded sessions absolutely address that question of 
the social impact of language research and the, and the positive as well as complex consequences of the decisions we make as lexicographers. I think that's kind of inspiring, also quite daunting in some ways as well, as Philip's alluded to. But that was a, a great thing to be a kind of keynote of the whole um, symposium for me as well. Yeah, well, I think your what you said, Michael, speaks a good segue to what I found inspiring about the symposium. I remember there was some there was a parallel session about Australian Aboriginal English and, and the speakers, Celeste uh, Rodriguez-Loro and um, Glennis Collard. So Glennis is a member of the Noongar community and Australian Aboriginal uh, group. And they talked about their project of, they created this public um, information campaign on heart disease. Um, and they, they worked on making that campaign in Australian Aboriginal English and they even showed the little um, animated video that they used to show on TV to inform Australian Aboriginal communities about the risk of of our disease and what they can do to prevent that that diseases which is which studies show is particularly prevalent in, in their communities and and I just thought that it was amazing because it's really showed that this work could literally save lives in that. And I think we've also seen in the pandemic just how important it is to communicate such important health information in a language that people, and it's not even about understanding. Of course, Australian Aboriginal people understand um, standard English as well, but there's something about this message being conveyed in their own voice by a character, this animated character that represented a a person in their community that they trust and be, being and this being spoken in words that they use themselves naturally when they speak that that really is very important that makes the message effective so more so much more effective than if we we're just you know uh conveyed in standard australian english so i mean it seems like a very small thing but it really has such an impact on enriching and maybe even you know, lengthening people's lives. So it's, as, a, as a linguist and lexicographer myself, I find that very affirming. It makes you feel that we're really doing important work. It was really powerful, was, wasn't it? Yeah. It was, um, was. and it, it's about a 40 minute presentation. It's brilliantly yeah. done. I'd urge anyone who hasn't seen it, who joy, who tunes into this to, to seek it out, because yeah. it's also, it packs a really powerful punch at the end. You don't quite know what to expect uh, was the outcome of their research, but it's it's beautifully presented. Yeah. Um, how about you, Philip? For me, there, there were two things that stood out. I think, you know, from an external looking outside of OUP perspective, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go back to what you and Lisa have been saying, Danica, and, and you know, it was particularly inspiring to me was seeing, for example, someone like Dilman um, on my panel joining from Sri Lanka, you know, from the midst of, of political t turmoil and huge um, electricity blackouts, we're battling electricity blackouts in South Africa. I mean, on the on the people who registered side, there was even a teacher from Ukraine who joined, you know, so people cared enough about this topic to join from really difficult situations and positions and, and make their voices heard. And I, th I think that was a real testament to, to uh, what was achieved with the symposium. But also, you know, on the on the flip side, looking inward to AUP, it's it's been one of the first fora that I can remember, and you know, I'm part of the furniture already at AUP. Uh, um, one of the, one of the first that I can remember where AUP as a whole has come together so comprehensively and been able to showcase 
our work across all the international branches and really create that awareness that we're not a, a British publisher in, anymore. We're an international publisher. In many instances, we're domestic publisher as well as, as international publisher. And and that was really powerful. That I think that created a, a kind of a narrative that deconstructed this narrative of um, OUP as the uh, cutting edge of uh, British linguistic imperialism, if I can put <laughs> it that way. And I think it's, um, you know, that was very important to me. And, and I'm really, really grateful to the OED for creating an opportunity like that for all of us to to showcase um, how we are affecting ordinary people, especially ordinary children's lives across the world. Yeah, that's a really, really beautiful thought, Philip. Thank you. Uh, well, Lisa, Michael, Philip, thank you so much for joining me today. I mean, it was a real privilege to have worked with you on this fascinating event. I think we can all be proud and of what we have managed to achieve together. And, um, and it's really great to have worked with you on this opportunity to shine a light on, on such an important um, topic as World English is. And I look forward to continuing to work with you in ensuring that our dictionaries continue to reflect um, with ever greater accuracy and sensitivity the way that English is used by, by different people around the world. Thank you very much, Danica. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Danica. Thank you, Danica. We want to thank Danica Salazar, Lisa Lim, Philip Lowe and Michael Prophet for appearing on today's episode of the Oxford Comment. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog featuring links to the panels and parallel sessions of the Oxford World English Symposium 2022. New episodes of the Oxford Comment will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 72 was produced by Stephen Philippi and Abby Bradfield-Taylor. This is Rachel Havard. Thank you for listening.